that uh, help us with our music ministry and blessing to us and a special gift to the dads on Father's Day, all right? John chapter 4, if you go back there, John chapter 4, the title of the message today is One Soweth, Another Reapeth, John chapter 4, and we'll take a look at what we just read a few moments ago. The disciples were not comfortable at all in the situation they'd been put into. They were in the midst of the Samaritans, and as we told you last week, the Samaritans were despised and even a hated people among the Jews. They'd been raised with the prejudices against the Samaritans from the time they were old enough to understand. And so the Gentiles, um, you know, they were... They were not Jews, and they were the Jews considered themselves, you know, set apart from the Gentiles, and they did look down on the Gentiles. In fact, they referred to the Gentiles as Gentile dogs. But the Samaritans were in a lower category than even the Gentiles. The rest of the Gentiles were. And so that's the crowd that they were going to. They had never, these disciples had never, uh, of their own choice, gone through Samaria to get up to Galilee from Judea. They'd never done that. They'd always gone roundabout. The Samaritan was coming down the street. They'd walk on the other side of the road to avoid contact with him. These Samaritans were not received as Jewish proselytes. Gentiles, other Gentiles were. Any other Gentiles could be become Jews. They could become proselytes and and uh, you know adopt the religion of the Jews. They could do that, but not the Samaritans. They were not welcome to be proselytes uh, of, uh, among the Jews. Any food that was prepared by a Samaritan was looked upon as defiled. There was a saying in Jesus' day among the uh, Jews, and it was this, he who eats a Samaritan's bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. So certainly they rejected the Samaritans outright wanted no dealings with him. As we read last time in verse 9, said the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Certainly that was so. And here they were in the midst of Samaria. And here they were without food. And they were at this well. And they were by themselves in the middle of the day. It was hot. They were hungry. Had nothing. And so the subject came up. We're going to get something to eat. And the need was some grocery shopping. They were outside of town, they were at the well uh, there uh, uh, near Sychar, but Sychar was a little ways off, and so the, you know, the Vaughn's store, uh, the grocery store was there in Sychar, so uh, they were looking for volunteers among disciples who's going to get, who's going to go shopping and get, uh, you know, get supper or get uh, uh, lunch for us there, get some uh, supplies for us, and uh, it made them all very uncomfortable. I mean, we're going to go into Samaria where, where we're, we've been taught that uh, Samaritan food, we're going to go into Sychar where Samaritans dwell and uh, we're going to buy food from Samaritans when we've been taught that it's, uh, uh, that it's defiled and then we're going to go to uh, among Samaritans and I'm the only guy there and I'm the only Jew there and I'm surrounded by Samaritans, I don't think so. So they said, well, you know, what are we going to do? And so they decided, well, we'll all go together. So all the disciples went together shopping. Now, men don't get together to go shopping very often. It's not something men do. Uh, you know, I avoid the mall as best I can. I've been twice, I think, since it's open. Uh, I had to go for one reason or another, but uh, try to avoid the mall as much as possible. I just, you know, I'm just not a shopper. I'll leave that all to Wendy. 
And uh, some of you men understand where I'm coming from on that one. But uh, these guys, you know, and, and to go grocery shopping, I've never done that. How many of you men have never gone grocery shopping? Let me see your hand. All right, a few, a few faithful, not too many. Not too many admit it. <laughs> not too many are proud of it. But um, anyway, I hadn't, I hadn't done much grocery shopping. Uh, Wendy takes care of that for me, too. I'm pretty spoiled, I guess, the way it's sounding and the way I'm looking at the survey, the poll I'm taking. I'm <laughs> feeling... Pretty lonely up here right now, but <laughs> but anyway, the uh, uh, yeah, they just, they went together and they went shopping. They got the food, you know. They, they they got out of there as quick as they could. They they didn't have any thoughts about anything else, but uh, you know how how quick can we get out of out of uh, uh, and get back to Jesus? And so that's the situation they were in. They got there and they see this woman that they had seen before. They'd seen her before because she must have been she must have been uh, you know heading out to the well when they were heading in because it was noon and she had come at noon and they were going uh you know into town to get food so they passed her no doubt they crossed over the other side of the street didn't say a word to her they uh probably uh surmised what she was doing in the middle of the day going for going by herself to the well when commonly it was early in the morning when it was cooler or later in the evening when it was cooler that they would uh, people would go, the people of the town, townspeople would go to the well to draw water for the day or for the night or for the following day. And she was in the middle of the hottest part of the day, going by herself there. They looked at her. Maybe they judged by her appearance or her attire or whatever it was. But they crossed, uh, crossed the other way. They knew, they knew one thing for sure, that she was a woman of Samaria. And they did not have any, want to have any dealings with her. Across the street they went, into town, as quick as they could, did their shopping, got out of there as quickly as they could. And uh, so um, they get to the, the scene, and we just read about it. They're speechless. They're thinking things. They're thinking a lot of things. But they're speechless and don't say anything at all about what they are seeing as they're quite taken aback by the fact that here's the Lord Jesus Christ conversing in a civil manner with this woman at the well who they know or they suspect anyway is not uh, a woman of uh, a very good reputation because of the circumstances they're, uh, they're concluding from. And so they've made their judgment call already. They've determined already that uh, she isn't one that should be talking, we should be talking to or that Jesus should be talking to. So here she's uh, uh, conversing in a civil fashion with Jesus. He seems to be very involved in concern for her and that. Uh, and so uh, there's some truths that we can take from here. There's three truths I want to share with you today and, uh, and uh, spend a little time on that these disciples needed to understand. Three truths that these disciples and that all disciples, that would include you if you're a child of God, if you're saved and you're following Jesus Christ, then you're included in the disciples. So this is going to include you. These truths, these three truths are three truths that we disciples need to understand uh, as, we, as we move forward in our, uh, our experience with Christ. So first of all, the first one is this. We need to see that the followers of Christ need to understand the difference between separation and isolation. So that's the first truth. You need to understand the difference between separation and isolation. The common practice, as I said, in encountering a Samaritan was to cross the street, to isolate oneself from the possibility that we could be contaminated by coming in contact or having to speak to a Samaritan who was despised, a despicable person. Why were they so? The Samaritans were the, uh, were the offspring or the, were the uh, descendants 
of five nations of people that uh, were put in, uh, in that area of uh, Palestine by the Persian king. Uh, the Persian kings, they repopulated that area after they had, after they had carried the uh, Hebrews into captivity in Assyria. They repopulated it with five nations of peoples, and they had a, they had a uh, you know, mixture of religions coming in there, and then they kind of adopted the religion of the land, which was Judaism, a form of Judaism. They kind of picked up on some of that. Um, they even offered, if you read about it in Esther, they offered to help with the building of the wall and the temple and so forth. They were rejected, and the Jews, you know, uh, uh, saw them for who they were, and they, uh, they uh, rejected them. They were, uh, you know, already, they were pagan uh, they had their pagan gods, they wanted to intermix and so forth, they wanted to help. So they got rejected there. So from that point on, they really did a lot, all they could to keep the Jews from uh, finishing the wall, from finishing the temple. And that was the crowd that was the, uh, the antagonists during the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. So that crowd was never, you know, a favorite of the Jews. And then there were some mixed, intermixing, intermingling of Jews with, uh, with those uh, five nations of peoples. And the descendants were, you know, sort of a, a mixture of all of that, a mixture of religion, a mixture and so on. When they were rejected from uh, being able to be part of the building of the wall, building the temple, then they went, as I said last time, and built their own temple on um, Mount Gerizim. And so they had... A, uh, you know, they had some concept of um, the Messiah coming, and they were waiting uh, like that for the Messiah to come. And, and uh, just like today, you have, if you talk to uh, a Muslim, they are going to say, yes, there is a Messiah coming. And they have some understanding that there's a Messiah coming and, and that, that there will be a, a prophet comes before Messiah. These kind of things are, are uh, common to them. As well, they're not looking for the Messiah that we are, but they're they're expecting a messianic figure to come and save the world. So uh, that was true of the Samaritans, but all of this had mixture. So, so um, this this adversity, this sense of uh, defilement that came uh, into the mind of the Jew, the the the, the committed Jew was was there. Uh, and so it was common practice just to avoid the Samaritan altogether, to cross over the other side of the street. <laughs> Saw in the news uh, this week that AOC encountered, a, uh, she encountered a, a conservative Puerto Rican. They were in a parade for Puerto Ricans in New York, I think it was. And so uh, this conservative Puerto Rican who's running against her in the next election, he uh, stepped up to her and wanted to speak to her about uh, a debate. She wanted to debate socialism with her, wanted to debate uh, uh, her position on socialism. So uh, the news um, uh, people reporting it said she uh, practically ran to the other side of the street. So, uh, so to her, a conservative is like a Samaritan, you know. I don't want to be defiled by a conservative. And uh, he was a very, you know, he's a very gracious man in his approach. He wasn't uh, harassing her anyway. He just wanted to talk to her about a debate. And so, so uh, but that attitude of, uh, I don't want to get near you. I'll cross the street, go on the other side of the street. That spirit is this kind of a spirit that we're talking about here uh, that these disciples had at the time. Their thinking was, we must be isolated from the Samaritans or we'll be defiled by their contact. And, of course, that is an error in thinking. That is the error that all cults uh, end up in compounds about. That's the, that's, the reason, that's the reason behind a cult 
wanting to, you know, isolate themselves from everybody else and be in a compound. And all cults that end up in compounds have that mentality that we're, we must isolate ourselves from the world around us and we must build walls and hide within the walls and operate within our little compound because we will be defiled by the world out there if we don't. That's an error in thinking. And these disciples needed to learn it. We need to learn it as well. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We may have learned it, but we need to understand it. See, so even Christians can slip into that mindset in, in some degree. We can get to that uh, mindset a little bit. We can, we can end up doing not very much to cultivate any kind of contact or connection with those that don't know Christ as their Savior. And that's a mistake that uh, Christians can make, that we can become, in our thinking, sort of isolationists and thinking, man, uh, I'm going to make sure that I have no real connection with anybody except other, you know, people that agree with me. <laughs> so uh, that, you know, it sounds good, it sounds right that we ought to choose our fellowship among those that agree with us, those that we, you know, can fellowship with. How can two walk together except they be agreed? These are all truths. But what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples there was that they had gone past separation into isolation. And we as Christians do not want to do that. We don't want to move past separation into isolation. I want us to be careful, too, not to choose the other extreme and, and take the position of many evangelicals today who would say, well, uh, we don't want to be isolated, and so we're not going to be separated. That is kind of what you see a lot of in the evangelical world today, is the idea of, well, I don't want to be isolated, so I'm not even going to be separated. Well, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus ever taught, that we ought not be separated from the world because we want to have contact with the world. You, you and I are able to have contact with the world and have uh, an impact on those without Christ without participating in, in, the, in worldly things. So that's what he's, uh, he's communicating across to us. There's some things to understand that are under this, uh, under this truth, this idea that we need to know the difference between separation and isolation. Things to understand. And the first thing that I uh, thought about as I was uh, preparing the message was this. Conversation is not condoning. Conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you it's not condoning their position or condoning their actions. That's not so at all. Uh, you and I as Christians ought to have conversations with those we don't, who don't agree with us. Uh, or we're short-circuiting. You know, we're going to be the last, we're going to be the last Christians because we, we uh, you know, isolate ourselves from everybody else who's not already a Christian. And that's not fulfilling the gospel at all, is it? So we need to be careful of that. And then we need to be careful to understand that conversing with those without Christ, conversing with Someone who, you know, is uh, positionally, diametrically opposed to our position is not uh, saying, well, because I'm talking to you and friendly with you and I'm cordial with you and I'm kind to you, um, that implicitly means I agree with you. That's not so at all. <laughs> so let's be careful to understand that, to recognize that. Sinners, you know, aren't, sinners are not going to behave like saved people because they're not saved, you know. Um, you didn't behave like a saved person before you were saved either, so, Unless you got saved at three years old, you know, you weren't too, too radical in your sins by three or four years old. You weren't out, you know, partying and going to the bars and going to the casino, uh, you know, at four. So I recognize that, you know, you probably didn't change a whole lot from the time you were four to the time you were five when you got saved as a kid. Uh, but, uh, but certainly, 
for us to, to reach the, the culture around us, to reach the world around us, we need to be careful to realize that sinners are not going to behave like saints until they're saved. Disciples first got this, and they understood this when they saw what Jesus was doing here. Now, the Jews had, you know, been cultivated and cultivated and cultivated into thinking that they were the chosen people of God. If anybody else was come, going to come to God, it was going to have to be them working on it, them coming, them seeking, them uh, approaching, them finding, you know, what the Scripture said, them doing it all. The Jews were not evangelistic. They were not concerned about going out into the culture and reaching people with the truth of God, you know. They built synagogues in Greek cities and in uh, Gentile cities, but they built them exclusively for the Jewish populations that operated in those cities. So they were not evangelistic at all in, in, uh, at that time. They, were, they should have been. They were supposed to be, but they were not. So the, uh, the idea that there of, uh, you know, um, Jesus teaching the disciples uh, the, that uh, you can have conversations with those that are not where you are without condoning what they're doing. That was what they had to get. And they did get it, thankfully. They did get it. They did understand it. It came to a place where they, uh, where they grasped that. And you, you can see it in Acts chapter 8. By the time we get to Acts chapter 8, verse 25, it says this. And they, uh, when, uh, this is the disciples, it's particularly Peter and John and other disciples were there to working the works of God. But it says, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Can you imagine how radical that was for them to go into Samaritan villages and preach the gospel to them and invite them to come to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And it was revival. I mean, it was happening. Those Samaritans were responding to the gospel. In some ways, they got it more quickly than the Jewish uh, converts got it. They understood it. They appreciated the grace of God more than the Hebrews, by and large, appreciated the grace of God. So, uh, so the, that's something to understand under this, uh, along with this idea of the difference between separation and isolation, to understand that conversation is not condoning sins. Then uh, realize this. We are, we are uh, we're called to, uh, to separate, but not to isolate. And I, uh, I want to be careful in this area. We're not called to be worldly, but we are called to reach the world. We're not called to be worldly, but we do live in the world, you know. We're, um, someone illustrated it, like a, a ship in an ocean is, things are good when the ship is in the ocean. Things are not so good when the ocean is in the ship, you know. And so uh, that's what we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it says it this way, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. So he'd already warned about that. Don't, you know, don't get in there and fellowship with fornicators. Don't go where fornicators go and do what fornicators do. Don't accompany with fornicators. In verse 10, though, he says it this way, and listen to it. He says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, for then you uh, must needs go out of the world. So he says, I'm not saying you should have no contact with these people that are extortioners and fornicators and, and uh, you know, um, idolaters and covetous people and self-centered and all of those things that uh, we've all been guilty of before we came to Christ. Uh, he says, I'm not saying that you have no contact with him, not altogether. I'm not saying you've got to come out of the world. What's he, what's he teaching there? He's simply saying, I don't want you to be thinking like an isolationist. 
to be walling yourself in and saying, I'm not going to have any contact with anybody that does or says any of these things because I don't want to be polluted by their actions. So Jesus made it very clear to them through the uh, writing of the Apostle Paul that they need to be careful not to get into that mentality. And uh, we need uh, a, a, uh, an understanding of that too. Now Jesus showed this in revealing what his purpose was when he came to the world. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 5, he says it this way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and this is Zacchaeus. He saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Luke chapter 19. Make haste and come down. And he received him joyfully. And now, notice the crowd there, the, the Jewish crowd there. Look at, look at what they say, verse 7. When they saw it, they all murmured. They all murmured. They all murmured, saying he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Doesn't he know who this guy is? Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, and here's the purpose that the Lord Jesus said he's come for. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Disciples had to get this. He wasn't just there to build the kingdom and give Israel a kingdom and give Israel a throne in the world. That's not his purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We Christians need to recognize that. That's why we're not to be isolationists. We're to be separatists, but not isolationists. Jesus showed that when he's uh, continuously saving the unlikely. He reaches the unlikely, and this is uh, remarkable to the Jews. They don't understand it at first, but we need to get it as disciples of Christ. He's teaching them that. He's teaching us that this day. Luke chapter 7 and verse 37 is an, an, another account where Jesus is saving the unlikely. Behold, a woman of the city was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, Luke 7, 37. Uh, she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet. Uh, behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known uh, who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And so the attitude was there that this sinner woman had there was no hope and certainly was deplorable that Jesus was allowing her to touch him and he was being defiled by her. And uh, in, her, in the Pharisee's mind, she, she was a sinner and still was at that point. But Jesus cleared it all up when he told her that her sins were forgiven. And in verse 50, he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And so um, Jesus was about the saving of the unlikely, the changing, the forgiveness of the unlikely. That's what Jesus is about when he comes. So the disciples had to get this. They were not in Samaria because it was just a shortcut to Judea and they could get there quicker. Jesus said, no, I've got to go there. I must needs go there. We must needs go to Samaria. There's a purpose there. And the purpose has something to do with sowing and reaping.
So uh, what a blessing that is. Jesus showed us that he saves the unlikely when he saved publicans and when he saved prostitutes and even when he saved Pharisees. He showed us that he saves the unlikely. Now, he didn't go to the bar and drink with them. He didn't go to the casino and gamble with them. He didn't participate in their practices, but he did engage them. He did engage them. Uh, embracing the practices of unbelievers is not how we reach them. It's more like, you know, when we do that, when we, when we as, uh, if we, uh, you know, take the position of an evangelical and say, well, we're going to just, you know, be what they are, do what they do, go where they go, say what they say, drink what they drink, watch what they watch, uh, you know, um, sit at the blackjack table with them and all these kind of things. We're going to do that because we want to show them that we're right there with them, they're right there with us. And all that's happening there is that the, the world is converting you to the world instead of you converting the world to Christ. You know, that's all that's happening there. And so we don't want that. We don't want the water filling the boat and sinking the ship. We don't want that happening. We need to be separate but not isolated, see. And so they, uh, you know, they're, they're out there and they're not going to hear the truth unless someone who has the truth talks to them and speaks to them, and has contact with them, and has conversation with them, and engages them, and sits across the table from them, and uh, speaks to them about their soul. It's not going to happen. You know, We need to recognize that uh, we as Christians need to have contact with those that are not. We need to speak to them, and we need to talk to them. They, if they don't see Christ in you, they likely won't see Christ at all. So let's recognize that, the importance of that. And we see what was on the disciples' mind when they came. They're thinking, they're thinking about the woman, and they're saying, Woman, what are you doing here? You know, that's basically what they're saying. Woman, what do you want from us? Well, why are you here? And so that's what they're thinking. They would ask the woman if Jesus wasn't sitting right there talking with her. They're thinking, I'd ask her that, but I don't, I'm going to keep my mouth shut right now. I'm not really sure what to say. So, but that's what this, the Bible says they're thinking. And the other thing they're thinking, they're wanting to ask Jesus another question. They want to confront him. It's, Jesus, why are you speaking to this wicked Samaritan woman? She's a trollop, you know. Why are you speaking to this Samaritan, this sinful, wicked Samaritan woman? That's what they're thinking. They don't say it, but that's what they're thinking. They needed to experience a radical change in their thinking, and so do we all. And so it was with that day. That's what happened that day. It's the first lesson they learned. The second uh, thing they need to understand, and we need to understand, is that followers of, as followers of Christ, is that what is uh, more important and what is less important. We need to understand what is more important and what is less important. Look again at verse 31 of the text that we started with. Verse 31, and meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore the disciples said one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat, anything to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. So the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching them a, a great truth here. He's teaching them there's things that are important, but there's things that are more important, you know? We were hungry and we were thirsty and yeah, we stopped here and I sent you into town to get something to eat and so on and so on. But I've had meat to eat that you don't know anything about, that you don't know about. There's things that are more important than just eating, you know. No, I didn't get anything to eat yet, but I, I'm kind of, I'm full because the Lord has blessed me with the opportunity to bring uh, this first Samaritan woman to Christ and open the door to Sychar 
to the gospel. And so I've had uh, something to eat that you guys aren't understanding. You don't know anything about yet. So, uh, you know, no, no disciple spoke to this Samaritan woman. No disciple spoke to him. They didn't, the disciples didn't come back from Sychar with a bunch of people with them saying, Lord, we, to- we told the city you were there and, and they want to come and hear you preach, you know. They didn't invite anyone. They're just saying, "Okay, get the beans, you know, get the lentils, uh, get some tacos, you know, uh, you know, and uh, maybe they got, you know, they got some uh, some some bacon or something like that." And they said, hey, "Let's do it. We're here in Samaria. Do it as Americans do, you know." I don't know what it was they got, but they said, "Let's get out of here as quick as we can. Get get to get to the counter, you know, get credit card out, get it paid for. Let's get out of here uh, before they really realize who we are and why we're here." So uh, that was all they were concerned about. They they didn't leave a gospel track. They didn't talk to anybody. They didn't even. Uh, enter any, any kind of discourse with anyone. They just wanted to get in, get out, get back, and that's the way it was. They, uh, they were uh, concerned. Their first concern was, what are we going to eat? We're hungry. Jesus needs something to eat too. Let's get the food. Let's, let's uh, go prepare it. Let's eat and drink and be merry, you know. So, uh, but this woman's actions were quite different from theirs, quite different indeed. She left behind what was important to her before, she came for the purpose of getting water in a water pot. She was thirsty, needed water at home, uh, you know, and so she came for water in her water pot. But the Bible tells us, we just read it, that she left her water pot and went into the city. She suddenly wasn't thirsty anymore. She suddenly wasn't concerned about, you know, just getting water. She had experienced the water of life, the well of water springing up into everlasting life, and she wanted others to know about it as well. So her first concern now was what Jesus' first concern was. She had a, a different response. She went to tell others about Jesus. And so what is, what is more important? Jesus told them, what's more important than just the day-to-day needs? What's more important than what you're going to have for lunch? And I know it's almost 12. You're thinking about lunch already. It's Father's Day. The ribs are on the, the grill, you know, pretty soon. And, and you know, the, the corn on the cob and all that stuff. And, and you know, wife's going to be nice to you today, you know, kids... <laughs> Kids are going to act like they like you today, you know. So, so I get it. I understand that. And that's important. But Jesus said, you need to, you need to recognize there's things a lot more important than whether, whether we eat at, uh, you know, 12.15 or 12.30 or 2 o'clock. There's things more important than that. He said, the will of God. I, I came, I've had meat to eat that you know not of. I'm doing the will of the Father. I know the will of the Father is to seek and to save that which lost. I know the will of the Father is that the world would be saved. That's the will of the Father. The desire of the Father is that the lost would come to Christ. And he said, I'm doing the will of God. And I'm doing the work of God. The work of God is more important than the day-to-day needs of our, our uh, you know, everyday life. And the winning of the lost, that's what he's talking about. He said, I've had meat to eat that you know not of. This work of the harvest, this harvest work. The idea of being in the harvest and, and reaping the uh, blessing of the harvest. So someone's sowed, someone's watered, and now they get to, to see a soul come to Christ as a result of it. And many more, many more as time goes on. So the lesson there for us is this. Let's not lose focus about what's really important in your life and mine. What's really important for us is to do the will of God, to do the work of God, to see differences made in somebody's life because of our testimony, because of our concern, because of our prayers, because of our giving. These are things that are really more important than, you know, what we have on the grill this afternoon to eat. And, and I think that's pretty important. I'm for that. You know, I vote, I vote for the, the grill. I vote for the ribs. You know, I'm for all that. 
but there's things much more important for us than that. And that's what he's saying. Keep it in perspective. Understand, Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't refuse food when they brought it. Jesus did not, didn't say, well, I'm not going to drink water when they gave it. None of that is so. He, he did eat. He did drink, you know, and uh, he did enjoy that. He did enjoy the, uh, the food and, and enjoy the drink. And it was quenching his thirst. But he said, let's keep in mind what's really, really important. So that, that is a great truth there to, to, for us to understand uh, the difference between the important and the essential. And then the third truth is this, that the followers of Christ need to understand the greatest, uh, where the greatest joys are. Where the greatest joys are. And he, he, re, he reveals that to us in, in uh, verse uh, 35, 36 there. Look at that again. Say not ye there yet four months and then come with harvest. Yeah, it's about four months away, they said. Maybe uh, November, December is when the harvest is going to come. Or if it was the winter planting, it would have been in the spring of the year. But he said, Behold, I say, and you lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. So they're white already to harvest. Look, look with different eyes uh, to a different field. He said, He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. And both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Here it is that saying true. One soweth another reapeth. But he's talking about uh, reaping. He said, I sent you to, to reap where another man sowed, where you didn't have any work beforehand. Somebody else did some work, and now you are reaping the blessing of it. You're, you're reaching people and coming to Christ. Some of you guys that go out to the uh, Pendleton base, you're getting to reap somebody else sowed. I mean, these guys have not, this is not the first time they've ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. They heard it somewhere. They've heard the gospel or some portion of it, some part of it somewhere, and you're coming to, to, to just bring in the, the harvest. Right now, the, right now, there in that place, the, the field is white unto harvest, you know. And so uh, what a blessing it is to be one of the sowers or one of the reapers. And that's where the greatest joys are, is in getting to be a part of this great plan of God, uh, of sowing or watering or reaping the harvest, getting to be part of that. That's the joy. You know, the joy in life is seeing someone else who was lost, that's now saved, you know. Someone else whose concern was about her living husband and getting the water pot filled and going back to the drudgery of life. Now she's lit up with life and she's on fire for Christ and she's telling the whole town, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And so uh, what a difference was made in her life. And can you imagine that pillowing her uh, head that night... I'm sure she kicked her living boyfriend out. I'm sure of that because she's a child of God now. And uh, maybe he got saved too and they got properly married. I don't know. And I hope what, a husband number six for her, if that was him, is the last one she had. You know? So uh, whatever the case, she got right with God and others in town got right with God. And, and the, the men of the city were rejoicing. And they said, yes, Jesus Christ, he is the Savior of the world. There was, everybody was happy. Revival brings a great deal of joy, and that was what's going on in that crowd today. The sowers were excited, the reapers were excited and happy, and the wages uh, of their work was uh, unto, the fruit unto life eternal. That's what I'm talking about. As I mentioned before, the uh, people of Sychar were the first people. You can read your, check your Bible carefully on this, but they were the first people that called Jesus Christ the Savior of the world. The Jews didn't. The prophets didn't. Nobody did. Old Testament or New Testament, his mother and father didn't. Uh, you know, the uh, Anna and Simeon didn't. They recognized him to be a blessing to nations and so on, but no one recognized that he was come to save the world but the 
uh, citizens of Sychar. They were the first to announce it, and God put it in His eternal word that the citizens of Sychar were the first to get it, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that Savior is uh, available still today in this world for you and for me. Thank God for that wonderful truth. So uh, that's my challenge to you today. Uh, do we understand the difference between separation and isolation? And do we get what are the really most important things about why God has left us to live our life here? Yeah, we should eat and we need to drink and we need water and we need sustenance. We need a, a roof over our head. We need clothing to wear. And we're concerned about those things. But let's always make our first concern, our greater concern to be, what is God doing with my life to, uh, that, will, uh, that will have an impact in eternity? You know? What is God doing with my life that will make a difference in somebody else coming to Christ? Uh, that's what we're talking about. Uh, are we doing some, something? Are we doing some things to see that others come to Christ? Do we have the joy of being among sowers and reapers that are gathering fruit in life eternal? And um, is there, is there uh, anyone else going to be in heaven someday as a result of contact with me, as a result of contact with you? Is there anyone else going to be in heaven someday as a result of that? And that's what we're talking about today. Those are three great uh, principles, three great truths that we, disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, need to understand. Let's stand together and give an invitation. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ. You haven't uh, trusted Him as your personal Savior and been born again.